Sir, the possibility of successfully navigating the faith crisis is approximately 3,720 to 1. Never tell me the odds. So then, in the metaphysical sphere, the mystic is the one who feels that everything that happens is in some way harmonious, is in some way right, is in some way an integral part of the universe. Now when we transplant or translate that into the moral sphere, the sphere of human conduct, the equivalent is this. There are no wrong feelings. No wrong because everything we're talking about, in other words, we're not asking you to face the reality, we're asking you to use your imagination. We're asking you to contour your thoughts in order to produce feelings. There are no wrong feelings. Use your imagination, contour your thoughts in order to produce feelings. Someone said that religion is for people who are afraid of hell. And spirituality is for people who've already been there. Your whole countenance here as we are visiting with you is, this is hard or I'm not doing it. And while that is the reality that maybe you've been living, it's not the whole reality. Because sometimes it isn't hard and often you are doing it. And so you just have to decide how you want to feel. When you feel a little negative emotion, if rather than saying, I need to change this thought or I need to bridge this belief, if you would say, I want to find a thought that feels better right now, right now, right now, right now. If you've adapted to not feeling good, then this isn't going to work for you. Never tell me the odds. Hello, my name is Dow Glenn Osland II. And I've been making podcasts about religion and spirituality and mythology and traditional culture and humor and a lot of other things for the past 10 years. And I welcome you to the first episode of the Happy Ex-Mormon Podcast, a.k.a. the Tao of Tao, which essentially means the way of the Tao, or in other words, the way of the way, or because my first name is Tao, the way I see things. A look at the world through the eyes of Tao, through my eyes. Now, the voices that you heard in that introduction were first uh, C-3PO and Han Solo. I hope you all recognize that. Then you had Alan Watts. There are no wrong feelings. Esther Hicks, a.k.a. Abraham Hicks. We're not asking you to face the reality. We're asking you to use your imagination. We're asking you to contour your thoughts in order to produce feelings. And Alan Cohen. Someone said that religion is for people who are afraid of hell and spirituality is for people who've already been there. Now, I really like that Alan Watts quote about no wrong feelings because I've recognized recently how important it is to drop judgment and criticism especially of naturally occurring processes. Now, this might be a difficult idea to grapple with, that there's no wrong feelings, because we've been trained so much to not like hate. Get rid of hate, get rid of anger, get rid of vengeance. But anytime you feel something, it's a reaction. It's an honest reaction. It's how you really feel about something. It's worth noting. It's worth exploring. So that's why I like that quote, that there's no wrong feelings. Here's another little something that I've heard that uh, I, I like that has kind of a similar message. When you witness a, a dark thought, a dark thought that 
isn't going to get you anywhere. You witness it and love it. You love your dark thoughts. That's Ram Das after his stroke. And what does it mean to love dark thoughts? That's a hard one. That's a really, really hard one. I, I don't really know what it means, except that the thoughts that we think are, are part of us. It's something that we've created. It's something that we've created in our minds and our imagination. If we're really going to be happy, it makes sense that we would love everything about ourselves instead of being critical, instead of thinking that there's something wrong or something not worthy, which is something that I think a lot of us have kind of been trained to think. It's really liberating when we can actually take something that is a part of us and go, oh, I understand this. I understand why it's there. I understand what it's doing. I appreciate what it is. I appreciate what it's doing. I don't need to let it have power over me, but I recognize it. I see what it is, and I love it. The stuff from Esther Hicks, Abraham Hicks, whether you believe in channeling infinite wisdom (laughs) or not, uh, I really love what she has to say because it's very close to what Dr. David Burns says in a book that's been really helpful to me called Feeling Good about cognitive behavioral therapy, about these cognitive distortions, bad thinking patterns. The ways that we think impact the ways that we feel. And so if you can control how you think, you can control how you feel. And if you want to feel good, think thoughts that make you feel good. And you can use your imagination to contour your thoughts. And you don't even have to make things up out of nothing. You can focus on things that are already existing that are good and just stop discounting the positive. That's one of the cognitive distortions of Dr. David Burns. And then Alan Cohen had the quote about religion is for people who are afraid of hell and spirituality is for people who have been there. I don't know. I like that quote. I like Alan. I've met Alan. I'm working with Alan right now. He's a life coach and an author. He wrote a book called A Course in Miracles Made Easy. That It really made a big impact on my life. And uh, I would recommend that to anyone who's listening here. If you're not familiar with it already, Alan Cohen, A Course in Miracles Made Easy. And I'll be interviewing Alan Uh, next month, uh, towards the end of November. So you'll get to hear him and we'll talk more about A Course in Miracles here on this podcast. But many of you listening may recognize my voice from Mormon Expression years and years ago or from Infants on Thrones. Much more recently, I've been doing that for seven years. I started a podcast called Mythologi. Got a few episodes up there. I started another one called The Enneagram Sandbox. There's not many in that podcast. I did one called Early Mormon Audio where I read from early Mormon books. I've been doing podcasting for a long time. I like expressing myself. I like the creativity of editing. It's a lot of fun for me. And so I'm doing this. Why am I doing this? Why not just keep doing Infants on Thrones? Well, Infants on Thrones is great, and I will keep doing Infants on Thrones, but there's a lot of baggage. If, you, if you're familiar with Infants on Thrones, uh, if, if somebody comes across Infants on Thrones and they're not prepared to dive deep into sarcasm and picking apart things that are very important and sacred to a lot of people, Uh, Infants on Thrones is going to be a really difficult entry point. And so I want to have a different place. I've come to a place now where I can honestly say 
I love everything that I've experienced. I love everything that I came across in the Mormon church. I still do. And even the feelings of anger, even the things that are really upsetting. And I want to have a softer, gentler, yet still fun and playful look at all things Mormon from the perspective of non-Mormons. I'm going to be interviewing a lot of non-Mormons. I'm going to be sharing with you the things that I've come across over the years that have helped me come to the place where I am, where I feel like I am a happy ex-Mormon. And I ask you, are you a happy ex-Mormon or are you a happy anything? What is it that makes you happy? Where do you find happiness? So this podcast is dedicated to the joy that I find when I creatively express the way that I see the world. And whether it becomes something like this, I'm I'm too sexy for compassion, too sexy for compassion, so-called tolerance must be wrong. Or like this, baby, come back. Any kind of fool could truly see there was something in everything about you. Or even like this. An angel with a sharpened sword told me that it's time for you and me to throw our cares away. Move closer to that veil of hate. My three-legged stool of promise to you listeners is that one... I will never take myself too seriously. I know that I only know what I know, just like you and just like everybody else. Each of us have a wonderfully diverse mix of experiences and relationships that make every single one of us a unique fingerprint on the universe. I don't expect to be understood or accepted. I only strive to understand and to accept. And I'm going to have fun and be playful as I do it. Two, my second promise, I will never not take myself seriously enough. In other words, I will stay as far away as I possibly can from self-critical, self-deprecating, self-invalidating comments or quips where I devalue my own unique uniqueness. We are the music makers, and we are the dreamers of dreams. This one is much more of a challenge because there are so many things that I've bumped up against in my life that have been designed to make me feel like I have to earn a sense of self-worth. And so I try to anticipate those by cutting myself down a little bit, by being humble, so to speak. So to those inner gremlins and harsh inner voices of mine who seek to strip away my own sense of self-worth, I invoke Monty Python, dear gremlin. I don't want to talk to you no more. in your general direction. And then number three, my third promise, in commemoration of JFK and MLK and Spencer W. Kimball, who was the LDS prophet of my youth, and in honor of the primary colors that are one, two, three, red, yellow, and blue, and in honor of Harry and Hermione and Ron, and of course Luke and Leia and Han, as well as all three of the blind mice, and in respect for small, medium, and large, and of late, early, and on time, and of the sun and the moon and the stars, and even the Father and the Son and the Holy Ghost, I do hereby solemnly swear to package my messages, whenever possible, in units of three, if for no other reason than to satiate that culturally inherited need we all have for a sense of completeness, that three patterns provide. That's right. Three patterns. Because this is a three-legged stool, right? I couldn't couldn't have a stool with just two legs, could I? All right. So I want to share something with you today that's very personal to me. It's something that I recently wrote as I was in deep meditation and I was reflecting on my relationship with my father. 
So my dad, who I'm named after, is still a very faithful member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, and I am not. And that's hard. About 12 or 13 years ago, when I was going through my initial phases of a faith crisis, and, and my faith crisis took a really long time, it was before the CES letter. I came up with kind of a CES letter type approach myself. I wrote down a list of all of the things that really just bothered me about the church. And then to try and balance it out to show that I wasn't just on the path to becoming a rabid anti-Mormon, I thought, let me reflect on the things that I like about the church as well. And so I sent my dad this list of, I don't know, 56 things I didn't like and maybe 37 things that I did like. And it just didn't go well. I, 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 he didn't have a good response for me. But mostly, I didn't have a way to contour my own feelings about his response to create any peace for myself. Does that make any sense? We're asking you to use your imagination. We're asking you to contour your thoughts in order to produce feelings. My response to him was what caused me so much pain. And it's taken me a really long time to figure that out. It's my response that I needed to change. It's my reaction. So about a week ago, I was sitting in deep meditation and I was picturing what it would be like to communicate with my dad really in an intimate one-on-one -on -one way. One of the ways that we used to do that quite frequently was through Father's blessings, through the priesthood. He would lay his hands on my head and he would speak to me as if he was speaking directly from God, as if the messages from God were coming through him. And it was a way that he would really open up to me and tell me what he wanted for me, how he cared about me. And I thought, what if I did that for him? What if I gave my dad a blessing? Now, I don't know if he would even be comfortable with me doing something like that, but I thought I'll at least write it down. I'll at least imagine what it is that I would say and what kind of blessing would I want to give him. So what you're about to hear is something that I wrote down and I did send it to him. And we've talked about it a little bit since then. I'll probably give updates from time to time in future episodes on how that goes. But this is the blessing that I gave to my father using the power of my own imagination. I hope you enjoy it. When I was young, it seemed that life was so wonderful. A miracle. Oh, it was beautiful, magical. The email that I sent my dad started off with some background and some context. So let me start there. Dear Dad, about a year ago, I read a book by Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff called The Coddling of the American Mind. At one point, the book discusses cognitive distortions, self-harming thought patterns that filter the way that we process information and directly impact the way that we feel. That book led me to another book called Feeling Good by Dr. David Burns, which goes into much more detail about these bad habits of thinking and offers suggestions and tools on ways to change them. After reading those books, I started noticing many of my own bad habits of thinking. Bad habits of where I chose to focus my attention. And I started to understand how those habits of attention have developed into automatic reactions and responses over the past 48 years of my life. Habits of attention that began as early as when my brain was forming inside of my mother's womb. Ways that I responded to the environment around me, emotions, and my response to those emotions that have formed the fabric of my understanding. 
This past weekend, I spent a lot of time in deep meditation. I wanted to better understand my own inner critical voices. Why am I so hard on myself? Why am I so critical of others? How does all of that criticism and judgment make me feel? What can I do to make different choices and change that? Do I even have a choice when it comes to the way that I think and feel? To better understand how my inner critic came to be, I decided to spend some time imagining my adult self interacting with my child self, being a friend and a father and a playmate and a mentor to that younger self. His name was Chip. Now, I was called Chip. I changed it to Glenn when I was nine or ten years old. If anyone called me Chip, I would ignore them. Or I would tell them, Chip died. I wanted to be a grown-up, like my dad. His name was Glenn. My name was Glenn. I'm named after my dad. And I've been going by Glenn ever since. So as I sat in meditation, I imagined my adult self playing with Chip in my old bedroom. Now, Chip didn't totally trust me at first, and he didn't want to do anything that I suggested. He only wanted to do what he wanted to do. So when I asked Chip, what do you want to do? He said that he didn't know. He just knew that he didn't want to do what other people wanted him to do. Doing his own thing was the most important thing to him, even if he wasn't exactly sure what that was yet. So I got down on my knees in my imagination, and I looked into his eyes, and I told him that was fine with me. I wouldn't force him to do anything that he didn't want to do. I would just hang out with him until he decided what he wanted to do, and then we would do it together. I asked him if that was okay, and he said sure. It wasn't too long before we started playing games of imagination with the Winnie the Pooh characters that my uncle had painted on Chip's bedroom wall. We opened up the door to Mr. Sanders' treehouse like I had imagined so many times as a kid, and we slid down the imaginary swirly slide into rooms and rooms of treasure. We pulled out Chip's old Tootsie Roll bank from the dresser that I used to call my washing machine, and I started counting all of the pennies lining them up and stacking them in the order of the year that they were made. We played with Star Wars action figures, and we burned Darth Vader's feet again when we put him on that hot lamp light bulb, pretending that he was being sucked into the sun. Then we shattered that hot light bulb once again as we tried to clean off the melted plastic with a wet washcloth. <laughs> then we went into the backyard and we swung in a hammock. We swung on the swing set. We built castles in my sandbox. We built cardboard box forts and listened to Bill Cosby records inside of them. We went down into the basement and played Pong on the TV. We rolled around in a huge mess that we made in my old toy closet. We sat at a little green and yellow desk and colored and played connect the dots and had many conversations, mostly by playing without using any words. It was a powerful experience in my imagination that brought with it many insights. And this is one of them. I don't have a very close relationship with my father. I don't think that either one of us really knows how to be closer to each other or what that would even look like. About 10 years ago, when my inner critic was busy taking apart all the different pieces of my Mormon beliefs and worldview, I exchanged a series of emails with my father that drove us farther apart. I listed many things that I didn't like about the church, and I tried to balance those things out with things that I did like about the church. And then I picked apart my dad's responses and shoved Humpty Dumpty right off his wall, causing, of course, his very great fall. And all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put Humpty together again. Now, how a horse is supposed to fix a cracked egg man is anyone's guess. But look, there it is again, my inner critic pointing out the flaws, doing what he does, doing his thing. Cuckoo-cachoob. 
Now, my relationship with my father has been polite and cordial, but it's been carefully awkward ever since, and maybe it always will be, with neither one of us really wanting to open up very much to the other. But the more time that I've spent softening the volume of my own inner critic and changing or trying to change my bad thinking habits as much as I can, the more I've found peace of mind and acceptance of the way that things are. The more that I've been able to just flow with what is, rather than bash my head against the brick walls of imagined shoulds. For example, when I'm aware enough to catch myself in a bad thinking habit, I ask myself two main questions. One, what part of this do you know for sure? What are the facts, right? And two, what part of this are you assuming? What are the fictions? I usually find that most of what I'm thinking in those situations are things that I'm assuming, things that I'm making up, fictions of my own creation, regardless of the facts that underlie them. And then I remind myself that since I'm the one creating those fictions, I can create other fictions also based on those same facts, and these new fictions will be equally as valid as the old fictions I created, and maybe they'll make me feel better. So I do it, and I stand on those facts, and I lean towards the fictions that make me feel better rather than making myself feel worse. And this is one of those fictions. It is a fact that my criticism of the Mormon Church played and plays a significant role in the current relationship that I have with my father. And then I tell myself fictions about what that means, that he will never understand me, that he's constantly disappointed in me, that he isn't interested in who I am or what I've learned over the years, or in how I see the world. And once again, this is my inner critic at work. So I decided to create a different fictional scene, similar to the time that I spent playing with Chip. But this time, I approached my father, and I do it on his terms, using the practices and the language and the imagery of my Mormon upbringing, which is still very much a part of me, even if I use different words and symbols now to communicate similar ideas and concepts. So I imagined asking my father if I could lay my hands upon his head and give him a blessing, to tell him who I am and how I see the world. And in my imagination, I opened up a new dialogue based on a different fiction than the ones that I've used before. And this is what I imagine that I would say. Dow Glenn Ostland, my father's name, laying my hands on his head. By the power of the holy Melchizedek priesthood, which I still hold, which was bestowed upon me by the laying on of your very hands, a power that I've magnified beyond many people's ability to appreciate and see, and in the name of Jesus Christ, who I understand and revere today with a greater depth than I have ever previously held, I lay my hands upon your head to give you a Father's blessing of comfort. And that blessing is this. Behold your Son. Behold the man who stands before you. Take an interest in who he is and in what he has to offer to you. Dad, know that I see you. Know that I have always seen you. Know that I have always loved you. Know that in my earliest years, I always craved your attention and your approval. Very rarely did I ever feel that I had done enough to earn it. Whether you did that intentionally or not, as a way to keep me from falling into what you feared would become a spirit of contentment and complacency, it made me hungry and it made me strong. It created in me a thick, stubborn resistance to many, many things. And that resistance acted like a cocoon. 
It insulated me from the pain that I felt about never being quite worthy enough for the love and connection that I craved. And it also blocked me from my own ability to love and connect deeply with myself and with others, which I also craved. And that seemingly unquenchable craving drove me. And eventually I broke through that cocoon and I broke many, many things along the way and I hurt many, many people who I truly craved to love along the way. But I did it, Dad. I broke through. Even if for the briefest moment of peace, like Jesus calming the stormy sea of my mind and telling me to have faith and fear not. And what I found on the other side of my fear, on the other side of that cocoon, on the other side of that pain, I want to share. Like Lehi, when he partook of the fruit of the tree of life and wanted to share it with those he most loved. That fruit that he tasted that was so delicious, it represented the love of God. But only a few of Lehi's loved ones were in a place where they could freely partake. Most were too far away for a number of reasons. Some were lost in a midst of darkness and sorrow. Some were drowning in depths of anxiety, worry, and despair. Others stood from afar and mocked from a great and spacious building, with no actual foundation of its own. Still others walked a straight and narrow path of love and charity, holding firm to the iron rod, the word of God. But even some of those were kept from the tree for a number of reasons. Perhaps some held fast to the rod, but stood exactly where they were. Perhaps others feared letting go of that rod in order to walk their own path leading up to that tree. I've stood in all of those places, every single one. And each experience that I gained formed different layers in the fabric of the cocoon that I weaved for myself from my own choices. You know as well as anyone that no one has ever compelled me to focus my attention on anything that I didn't want to focus my attention on. We're all free to choose. Now, once upon a time, I found a nice way to connect with you, Dad. We used to talk about different things that drew our collective attention regarding the church. Pseudepigrapha, Colob, Battlestar Galactica theology, the Watchers. We both have very curious minds. We both enjoy coloring outside the lines. We clearly have decided on different limits, however, on how far outside the lines we're willing to draw. We differ also, I suppose, on who we allow to determine those lines and boundaries for us in the first place. You went with me, and with my curiosity, for as far as you could comfortably go. And I greatly appreciate that you did that, Dad, and that you instilled in me this Socratic desire to challenge and question, and to challenge and question again and again, and to challenge and question and keep challenging and questioning. So I made the choice to plunge ahead and explore my interests in my way, at my speed, and I did it mostly on my own. I have a very vivid memory of doing connect the dot coloring books when I was little. I learned very quickly that if I connected dot one to dot two and so on and so forth, I would discover a picture of a triangle or a giraffe or a clown face. The pictures became more fun and complex the more dense and chaotic the clouds of dots appeared before me on the page. Forming a clear picture out of the chaos was very satisfying for a while until my keen young mind reverse-engineered the whole game. Soon, I became bored simply following the guidelines and filling in the supposed missing pieces to a picture that someone else had already drawn and hidden in plain sight. That's not real creation, and I have always been a real creator. Which is what always brings me back to that fruit at Lehi's tree. When I create, that's when I feel the most in tune with my own creator. When I do what I love to do, and when I create what I love to create, 
I'm exercising the gift of free agency that is the love and trust and the sense of innate worth that God put into me and into every man and woman on this planet. God endowed us all to be creators. And while creation is always some form of connecting chaotic clouds of pre-existing dots to form some picture of meaning, I needed more variety, more complexity, a larger canvas for my imagination, a palette full of more shades and colors, the ability to manipulate the chaos and connect the dots that no one else ever sees, to treat them more like Legos and put them together in different ways, just to see how each new creation looks and to feel how each new creation feels. This is what drew me to the study of folklore and mythology. I earned a master's degree and most of a PhD. I did that to add more building blocks to my Lego set. I learned the role that tradition plays in providing us, immediately from birth, readily available, connect-the-dot scripts that create personal and group identity, customs, beliefs, stories, and ideas that construct a sense of meaning and purpose in the world, constructions that all ultimately warp and change over time, words and symbols that move so quickly in the security-craving mind of men from the realm of created fiction and metaphor to the realm of revered, rigid, sacred, dogmatic, literalistic monoliths, which is, in itself, another massive act of creation and imagination. What I'm saying, Dad, is that I see the world in a very fascinating and playful way. I see the monoliths of fictions everywhere I look. Some are my own created fictions. Most are the fictions of other groups and other individuals. All of them are magnificent works of art, created from the fabric of incredibly diverse human experience. It happens so frequently and so naturally that hardly anyone ever pauses to recognize that they are doing it, that they're creating these things, they're creating this worldview. They're creating, in a sense, their own perception of reality. Even fewer people learn how to master it and to intentionally create for themselves the world that they desire to inhabit and playfully co-create with those around them. Now, there's no need to judge any of these created fictions as good or bad, as valid or invalid, as true or false. Unless, of course, that judgment is a self-determined created fiction that brings you some degree of comfort or pleasure. But each of these fictions is an artistic expression built mostly on assumptions rather than facts. Assumptions that people are comfortable assuming, which means that these fictions exist as a reflection of the incredibly diverse creators who create them, whether they're aware of it or not. I now look at people's fictions and I say, oh, so that's who you are, rather than saying, that's weird, or that's wrong, or that's not like me. Each person's life experience and how they creatively express themselves is a unique fingerprint on the universe, and those fingerprints morph and change as they interact with other fingerprints, and all of them flow along like ripples hitting ripples hitting ripples in a pond with all of the other cycles of life. This is not what most people see, which can be quite isolating, and that isolation has also been part of my insulating cocoon. But stepping outside of judgment has been a very freeing sensation for me. Recognizing and respecting the tremendous power that I have as the creator of the fictions in my life has been tremendously empowering. Identifying the way that free agency has allowed me to focus my attention on whatever I want, whenever I want. To worry, 
to rejoice, to catastrophize, to accept conflict with gratitude for the hidden treasures buried deep beneath, to zero in on the negative while discounting the positive, to use my own confirmation bias to find confirming evidence for things that I want to be certain of while blinding me to any evidence to the contrary. This is all part of the human experience. Automatic habits of thought have developed over time that sometimes make me feel like I don't actually have control of the swirling chaos of dotty thoughts in my mind, but I actually am the one making the choices on where to focus my attention. We all are, and we all live within our own bubbles of constructed worldview. We all have the power to make that worldview anything that we want it to be. I see that so clearly. I've lived it. I'm living it right now. I see this free agency to create our worldview as the greatest gift that God has given to us. It is consciousness. It is life itself. And I have learned to see every person as an artist and a creator, and have learned to appreciate what they create as their way of saying, this is the unique combination of experiences and relationships that is me, regardless of what it is. And so much of what is created comes from places of pain creators who are desperate to break out of their own cocoons of suffering. I see this as the reason that we chose to follow the plan of salvation and to bring our spiritual energy to this earth, not only to get these physical bodies and all of the delicious pleasures that we're able to experience within them, but also for the act of creating the world that we want to create with all of the Lego pieces at our disposal, just to see what we're each able to make of all of it, just to feel what it actually feels like to build our own idea of heaven on this earth, or hell, to create from love or from fear. And there's nothing wrong with whatever we choose. There's no way to mess this up. Fear and pain builds powerful cocoons. On the other side of my cocoon, I found a deep and flowing bottomless sea of love and hope and charity. And I feel the peace and comfort that comes from flowing along with it, rather than paddling upstream against it. To be the part of that sea of love and charity that is me, and to go willingly where it moves me, spending my energy on making the best of where I am in each flowing current, rather than paddling upstream and struggling against what simply is, spending my energy on being as charitable as I can possibly be with everything that life presents to me. For charity suffereth long, and is kind, and envieth not, and is not puffed up, seeketh not exclusively her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, and rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Wherefore, if you don't have charity, you have nothing, for all things must fail. But this outlook of charity, when I hold it in my heart, I do not despair when fictional monoliths arise and crumble. And I want to share this outlook with others by the way that I live my life each day. But mainly I want to just do this for the own peace of mind that it gives me, the way that it lets me become the eye of any storm when I'm doing it well. And that's my goal for the rest of my life. That's what Lehi's fruit tastes like. And that fruit has given me a tremendous sense of meaning and purpose something that I craved for for so long in my life. This fruit has soothed my troubled mind by showing me how to love and accept the things that once drove me so absolutely nuts. It has softened my thick, stubborn, multi-layered cocoon of resistance. But don't take my word for it, Dad. Watch me. 
Behold for yourself how I put this into practice, and please forgive me when I forget and fall out of charity. I'm sorry for the times that I've fallen out of charity. Please forgive me. Thank you for all that you've done for me. I love you. And I seal this blessing upon you in the name of my Father and the name of your Son, Dal Glenn Osland. Amen. When I was a boy, they called me Chip. When I wanted to be more of a grown-up, they called me Glenn. But my first given name is actually Dow. And in Eastern tradition, the Dow is the way. The Dow is the harmony and the flow of all things. The Dow rises above judgment. It rises above criticism. It accepts everything in its place, exactly where it is, exactly how it is, with love and gratitude and charity. I was Chip in my earliest years. I've been Glenn for most of my life. It's now time that I want to embrace the Tao. And I want to close this inaugural episode of the Happy Ex-Mormon podcast by reading a poem by Oriah Mountain Dreamer. It's called The Invitation. It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you'll risk looking like a fool for love for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow, if you have been opened by life's betrayals or have become shriveled and closed from fear of further pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own, If you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, to be realistic, to remember the limitations of being human. It doesn't interest me if the story you are telling me is true. I want to know if you can disappoint another to be true to yourself. If you can bear the accusation of betrayal and not betray your own soul. If you can be faithless and therefore trustworthy. I want to know if you can see beauty even when it's not pretty every day, and if you can source your own life from its presence. I want to know if you can live with failure, yours and mine, and still stand at the edge of the lake and shout to the silver of the full moon, yes! It doesn't interest me to know where you live or how much money you have. I want to know if you can get up after a night of grief and despair, weary and bruised to the bone, and do what needs to be done to feed the children. It doesn't interest me who you know or how you came to be here. I want to know if you will stand in the center of the fire with me and not shrink back. It doesn't interest me where or what or with whom you have studied. I want to know what sustains you from the inside when all else falls away. I want to know if you can be alone with yourself and if you truly like the company that you keep in the empty moments. Thank you for listening to the Tao of Tao, a.k.a. the Happy Ex-Mormon Podcast. If you like what you hear, please give the podcast a five-star rating and write a short review on iTunes or on whatever podcasting service you use. Now, this episode that you're listening to is, as always, a labor of love, and creating it is, as always, my absolute joy and pleasure. Now, I do need to make a living, however, so if you find this podcast to be entertaining, thought-provoking, or valuable to you in any way, 
please flex your gratitude muscles by thanking me for my efforts with a direct donation in the amount of your choosing. Donation details can be found on my website, happyxmormon.com. I'm also currently becoming a certified holistic life coach under the tutelage and mentorship of Alan Cohen. And it would be my absolute pleasure to help coach you towards a greater self-directed sense of peace and fulfillment in your life. Let a master folklorist help you discover where you are in your own hero's journey. And let me help you become more aware of the ways that you author your own life. If you're interested in working with me one-on-one, please visit the website happyxmormon.com and reach out. Special thanks to the brilliant musical artist, Diderda, for allowing the use of his amazing remix of the Beatles song, Because. And an even more special thank you to each of you listeners for co-creating this work with me. If there are questions that you have about today's episode, comments that you have, or any areas where you want to challenge or push back, why not take a few minutes to record something on your phone in your own voice and email it to me. Include your name and your location, and I'll give you a shout out and I'll respond to you directly on the podcast. Details can be found at happyxmormon.com. It's my hope and prayer that you will find calm, peaceful shelter in the midst of all of life's storms. And if possible, even enjoy the rolling sound of thunder as it pours. So there may be wrong actions, but the way you feel, loving, hating, etc., etc., there aren't any wrong feelings. And so to try and force one's feelings to be other than what they are is absurd and furthermore dishonest. But if, for a change, we would allow our feelings and look upon their comings and goings as something as beautiful and as natural and necessary as changes in the weather, the going of night and day, and of the four seasons, we would be at peace with ourselves. Because what is problematic for Western man is not so much his struggles with other people and their needs and their problems as his struggle with his own feelings, with what he will allow himself to feel and what he won't allow himself to feel. You're right. You've got to do one of two things. You've either got to change your belief or you've got to find a new one. You either have to find a belief that matches your desire or you have to stop thinking the belief that doesn't match your desire. And it really is the same process because you can't focus upon what you don't want and what you do want at the same time. So the operative word here is focus, isn't it? But rather than thinking of focusing thought, think for just a little while. We're talking about a day or two or three or four or 30, just a little while, a month really, of deciding that you're gonna focus your emotions rather than your thoughts, meaning you're gonna be aware of your emotions so that when you find an emotion that doesn't feel good, you do your best as early in the recognizing that it doesn't feel good as possible to release the thought, which means think a different thought. So when you feel a little negative emotion, if rather than saying, I need to change this thought or I need to bridge this belief, if you would say, I want to find a thought that feels better right now, right now, right now. If you've adapted to not feeling good, then this isn't going to work for you. So then you got to meditate until you discover that you can feel better. So when you realize that it is vibration and that feeling good is what really matters, and then if you're willing to start reaching for thoughts that feel better, 
Your whole countenance here as we are visiting with you is, this is hard or I'm not doing it. And while that is the reality that maybe you've been living, it's not the whole reality. Because sometimes it isn't hard and often you are doing it. And so you just have to decide how you want to feel. Once upon a podcast. Once upon a time. In a time before time. Once a beautiful princess. This is the Mythologi Podcast. Modern retellings of ancient myth. I am your Mythologi. Mythologi, Mythologi. Does whatever a Mythologi does. Today's story, The Vinegar Tasters. Once upon a time, In the far corners of ancient China, three men found their way to a very curious well. The men did not yet know this, but this well, you see, was filled with vinegar. All that these men knew was that according to ancient tradition, the contents of this well represented the very essence of life. All three men stepped forward, each anxious to taste for themselves the true essence of life. The first man was dressed in the traditional robes of Confucian. He was tall and thin. His face was worn and leathery and stern. He looked as if he had forgotten how to smile sometime in his youth. The second man wore the traditional robes of a Buddhist monk. He was short and stout. His face was round and proud and indifferent. He looked as if he had forsaken the frivolities of life sometime in his youth. The third man wore the common traditional robes of his village. He was, in fact, a Taoist. He was of average height with an average build, His face was horribly pocked with warts and scars, but his expression was one of hidden bemusement, of perpetual lip-biting, as if he were about to burst out laughing at the seriousness of these other two men at any instant. Each man bowed his head slightly in respect in greetings of the other two men. The first man, the Confucian, He came to the well. He drew a cup from his robes and dipped that cup into the well. He took a long drink and immediately spat out the liquid from his mouth. Why, this liquid is sour, said the Confucian. I suppose I should have known. Even the lowest village idiot knows that life on this earth is out of harmony with the ways of heaven. This is why we need strict rules to bring our degenerate existence back into harmony with the divine. This well is filled with polluted wine. And turning to the other two men, he said, Drink at your own risk, but don't say I didn't warn you. And with that, the second man pulled a cup from his robes, dipped it into the well, and took a long drink. Immediately, he also spat the liquid from his mouth. Why, this liquid is bitter, he exclaimed. I suppose I should have known. 
as one who has reached enlightenment. I accepted long ago that life was suffering, and suffering leads to bitterness unless we detach ourselves from desire. This is not polluted wine, for wine is sweet. Because of that, I filled my cup and desired to taste something sweet. But there is nothing sweet about this liquid. I should have known better than to expect and desire otherwise. Drink at your own risk, my brother, but don't say I didn't warn you. And with that, the third man extended a single finger and dipped it into the well himself. He tasted it, then he turned to the other two men. Wait, could this be? And then he dipped his finger in again and tasted it once again. The expression on his face turned into a smile. Why, yes it is. How perfect. This liquid, you see, is vinegar. And as vinegar, it tastes exactly like vinegar, exactly as it's supposed to taste. And with that, he pulled a sweet apple from his robe and took a bite. Mmm, this has never tasted better. Thank you, fine man, for showing me the value in accepting the whole experience of life. your question now about what is it that you do how is it that you become less sensitized to what other people think about you care about what others feel and then notice the fluidity with which they feel different things about you at different times notice the futility of trying to please them when they don't even really know what they want from you notice how fickle they are in what they do want from you notice that no matter how hard you try no matter how much you do for them no matter how much you stand on your head in order to please them they still aren't pleased because you're looking for love in all the wrong places most humans treat that subject like this here I stand and I'm somewhere between where I am and what you think I should be and what you think I should be and what you think I should be and you two 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 and you two. So please all of you get together and make the same decision about what you think I should be because when I do what you think I should be, you're happy but you aren't. And when I do what you think I should be, you're happy but you aren't. And so you're pretty much driving me crazy because I'm trying to be what you think I should be. And after a little while of doing your level best to be the facilitator, to be the uplifter, to be the one that is always in the right place at the right time, who always makes it better for anyone or everyone, and then to have them not let it be better anyway, there's still more than I need from you. And you didn't do that quite right. And I don't feel good because you did that instead of that. And after a little while, if you're wise, you come to the awareness that it must not be my job. I could not possibly have been born in order to please all of you who want different things from me and everybody else. Surely there's another guidance system within me. Surely there's a reasonable guidance system within me who really understands who I am as a spirit, who I am as a soul, who I am as an energy, who I am as an eternal being, who I am, who I am and what I've come into this physical life experience to be. Surely there is someone who knows that. And we say, yes, there is. 
There is someone who knows that. It's your inner being. It's that cadre of non-physicals who are aware of you, who know where you are in relationship to where you want to be, and who are calling you to the fullness of who you have allowed yourself to become in every moment of every day.